2: Well, it does look like we are getting something from Apple when it comes to satellites and the infrastructure uh, that they're creating in order to have faster, better, more reliable access. Uh, Shira over is here shrugging her shoulders. Making some interesting faces. <laughs> she's, a, she's a columnist covering tech. What thank goodness think? this is
3: radio. Nobody yeah. can see me. Make Actually, nothing like this.
2: Honestly, like <laughs> these, these are these are fantastic expressions and sort of say everything that you need to say. You're dubious. Okay, just, just hold on a second. Just just by your shrug and the face that you just made. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Shira Oviday, my guess is that your take on this is that it's a pie in the sky kind of investment that is something that they can do with their oodles of cash and that seems feasible.
3: Uh, Maybe. Yeah. So I I think my reason for the shrugging is that there are a lot of companies working on um, what are called kind of low Earth orbit satellites. Um, that are, in theory, will be used to provide better or more available um, mobile internet service. So, you know, Jeff Bezos, both Amazon and his Blue Origin space company are working on a project. So SpaceX, the Elon Musk company, there's a number of um, smaller startups like OneWeb that are also working on these projects. And the idea seems cool, right? It's that uh, right now providing mobile internet, it requires a lot of physical infrastructure on the ground, right? You have cell phone towers and all these base stations. And as we move into a 5G world, there's going to be even more of these necessary um, to kind of provide Uh, efficient and reliable mobile internet. And so the idea is we can fire a whole bunch of satellites into space that may be a more effective solution to provide mobile internet, particularly in places that are rural or remote, either in the developing world or in places like the Arctic or Alaska or rural Iowa or whatever. But so it's, it's s- going to be it's going to be very expensive, yes. and it's going to take a very long time. And there's legitimate questions about whether any of this stuff is technologically feasible.
1: It's interesting. We also saw today with the Boeing launch and then the failure to reach the space station. The satellite business is a tough business. Uh, there's a lot of failed satellite companies out there, and there's a lot of bondholders that are holding on the paper, and they're really in, in concerned. There's space is literally littered with uh, failed satellites up there. If you're at Apple, is I guess the question a lot of investors have is, because I think the surprise a lot of investors is, is it better to kind of do it yourself or just kind of outsource it, I guess?
3: Yeah, it's a very good point. And, and you're right, there there are a lot of failed uh, satellite companies out there, including satellite broadband companies. So we'll see how this progresses. On the other hand, look, we do want companies, particularly companies like Apple that throw off lots of cash, to invest in in promising future projects. And we talked about earlier with Amazon, right? We've seen the investments they've made in their infrastructure with things like warehouses and their delivery operation, that that has really paid dividends in transforming the company and getting packages to people's homes faster. I have a crazy idea. And we were talking about this with John Butler of of Bloomberg Intelligence earlier.
2: Why doesn't Apple, with its crazy boatloads of cash, just buy
3: AT&T? Or buy Verizon? Uh, okay, I mean, it's look, it's a totally fair question. Thank you. And look, we did see, we have seen circumstances in the past where Google, they did not buy one of the telecom companies, but they did have their own um, uh, internet and cable television company, which they have significantly scaled back because they felt that they couldn't really make it work. Uh, on a large scale, the way that you know the sort of comcasts and and at and ts of the world make it work.
1: it's interesting. I'm looking at the AT&T, I'm sorry, the Apple shares fifty two week high today Uh stocks up seventy eight percent year to date market cap of one and a quarter trillion dollars. Sure, it just seems like you know whatever they're doing, shareholders just love it. So I guess the big issue for this company has been, can it pivot from a, phone-only company, handset-only company, to a more of a diversified services company, looks like the market's saying yes.
3: I think that's right. The market is saying yes. I certainly have doubts about whether that transformation is real. Um, it it, It is very interesting to look at what Apple is spending money on. So this is a company that has, as a share of revenue, tripled their expenditure on research and development the last five years, that Apple, for a tech company, is still spending a relatively small share of their revenue, about 6% of their revenue, on research and development projects. So that's everything from the stuff that is going into phones right now to these kind of future satellite projects and augmented reality glasses and driverless cars and whatever comes next. So I think investors have been very willing to be patient on seeing some of those longer term projects off, it is right now affecting Apple's profit, that you see the the profit margin at Apple has gone, the operating profit right. margin, used to be 29, 30 percent five years ago, and now it's 24 percent. It's at the lowest level it's been in a decade. And one big reason for that is this heavy spending on research and development. Yep. Yep. 24 still- percent. Yeah, exactly. I know. Exactly. I mean, Come it's on. A, yeah, exactly. yeah, fair <laughs> enough. It is still on. a massively sure, profitable <laughs> okay. company. Sure, yes. Thanks
1: so much for joining us. here sure, over a day, Bloomberg Opinion Technology Company. Thomas, you can read all of her work and all the other great work done by our folks at Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com opinion or on the terminal at OPINGO. They do fantastic work, really giving you, I think, unique views into a lot of industries, a lot of companies, a lot of the news items going on. Uh, and they're really well informed. I heard you to read that uh, Bloomberg Opinion work, outstanding stuff on the terminal and on the website. Well, a year ago today, where were we a year ago today? We were down, you know, close to 20%. The markets were falling apart.
2: You're doing exactly what Tom Keane does every day, because he's not here, so you're doing it. I know, so
1: I am doing it. And what a difference a year makes. A year ago, our next guest came in, Peter Kenny, founder of the Strategic Board Solutions, uh, and Kenny & Company, he was in this studio a year ago saying, things aren't so bad, let's get constructive. Peter Kenny, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Where do you stand now, you boy? You a you were super right. Thank you. What do we
4: do now? Do you think? You know, uh, it's been a great year. I kind of expected this, of pretty much more or less to the point uh, on the S and P five hundred. I'm still very constructive, believe it or not, in spite of the fact that we've just seen a twenty eight percent gain for the S&P 500 this year, 2019, I'm still constructive, but much more modestly so. So instead of the 28% that we saw this year, I'm looking at maybe between 6 and 9% next year, may get us to 3,500 by the end of the year. The reason why I'm still constructive, in spite of the fact that we've seen a 28% gain, is because we have very low interest rates, great economic data, clear signs of re-engagement in terms of growth in the U.S. economy, Great news in the trade front and consumer sentiment, income, employment. This stuff is just super, super strong. And I think that we're going to continue to see that, you know, the tide lift.
2: All right, Peter, there's a difference between six to nine percent returns Mm -hmm. that steadily get uh, Mm -hmm. developed over the year. Mm That seems to be different than what people think is going to happen, mm-hmm. where it's going to be front-loaded in the front half of the year mm-hmm. and then the back half is going to be kind of rough mm-hmm. uh, based on political uncertainty. Yeah. Would you agree with that assessment?
4: Absolutely. Okay. Uh, yes.
2: So in the first half of the year, what kind of returns can people expect?
4: I think bet- first, by the end of the second quarter, I think you can look at maybe 7 to 9%. But it is definitely going to be much more choppy than we saw this year.
2: Even in the first half?
4: Even in the first half. And I would suggest that the volatility that we see peak next year will be in the first half.
2: Really? Why? Yeah.
4: Well, a couple of things. First of all, the CBOE um, options are suggesting that there's complacency in the market.
2: Yeah, and that, pretty much everything else is suggesting that as well.
4: And the VIX, if you look at the VIX with a 12 handle, there's complacency yeah. in the market. When you see those two um, indicators at the depressed levels that they're at, there is, it's almost a near certainty that something is going dis- to disrupt that calmness in the market. And I think that that's likely to happen somewhere Q1, Q2. Now, I'm still constructive on the year, but I do think we're going to start seeing some volatility. It's just we just had too long a period without it.
1: So is how much of your you know 6 to 8 6 to 9% kind of return scenario for 2020 predicated upon a
4: very benign fed oh a big part of that great okay. yes that's a huge part of this because you know we're heading into an election year and we all know that the fed historically in an election year tends not to be active in the market okay. in terms of shifting policy. Now, the yeah, Fed will-
1: already told me, I was suggesting maybe we could have a rate increase at the data point. No.
4: Lisa, quote unquote, rejected that assertion. She's right. She's, <laughs> I abso-
1: <reject> that. <laughs> she's absolutely right.
4: Now, we're going to continue to see the Fed add liquidity. Because, you know, we have the repo conversation. Okay. But that said, I don't think we're going to see much in the way of side. Yeah you, yeah, you
2: reject that as well. Yes. I mean, it just seems implausible to me. They are so yeah. shell-shocked by what happened last year in yes. December that there's no way that they're going to do that, right? Absolutely. Okay, so the question is, are we going to actually see inflation pick up?
4: Uh, I think we may see a degree of inflation. And the reason why I say only a degree, in spite of what we saw today in the data, is because the global economy is not going to allow inflation... To really rise above where we're seeing it right now. Okay, you know, but to, but
2: then, how much it. inflation do we need to see mm-hmm. before it disrupts the sort of complacency that we see around no inflation, and mm-hmm. that that's being priced into?
4: Buckets. I don't think that inflation is going to be the driver of what upsets the complacency. Okay, I don't. I just don't see it. You know we're seeing great rejects
1: em-
2: that
4: yes <laughs> I, I great employment numbers great confidence and great income gains and we're seeing that in really healthy spending but we're not seeing it filter through to the economy in terms of making things more expensive with the exception of some real estate some pockets of course but that's been a thing that we've been dealing with for now for three four or five years
1: we've seen in 2019 and this grind up in the market yeah. You know, periods during the year would be people were saying, well, I got to go defensive. And then we'd mm-hmm. see people going back into right. more cyclicals or mm-hmm. maybe even the growth stocks. Yeah. How do you how do you think the yeah. the 2020 will be in terms of do I take a little bit more mm-hmm. risk with my portfolio or mm-hmm. do I get a little bit more defensive?
4: Well, I think that people who've been around for any period of time at all are de- and I was with a couple of pretty significant individuals last night uh, in terms of the markets. The sense is that. Listen, if I'm putting the money, uh, money to uh, work in the market right now, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Why? Because of the run-up we've seen. Yeah. You know. Uh, so I think if people are looking at their overall portfolio, they're going to look at a more defensive posture that's going to be fueled by policy. In other words, a degree of certainty that the markets might not otherwise provide. And I'm speaking specifically of infrastructure.
2: Okay, what do you think will be the worst-performing asset class of 2020? Um, What's the big loser?
4: I think it's going to be utilities. Interesting. I think it's going to be utilities. And the primary reason I say that is because um, with utilities, pricing is largely baked in. There's very little alpha out there that you can harvest that is going to be priced into a market where... There's going to be a lot of liquidity, and there's going to be a lot of money sloshing around on the market. It's not going to be looking for dividends.
2: Right. Well, so on the flip side, what's going to be the absolute best performing asset class?
4: I love infrastructure for 2020. Okay. Um, love heavy construction. Uh, I continue to be very, very engaged in the real estate space. I think Really? Yeah. In spite of the fact that we're seeing pockets, I think it's you're seeing pockets of over- I would suggest inflation in some real estate markets. But I think that's also fueling a wider growth in real estate demand and exposure in terms of investment. So secondary and tertiary markets are seeing real benefit now.
1: you think we're actually going to get a trade deal that's actually on paper that somebody can see or are we just going to get tweets?
4: Uh, We're going to get a trade deal and it's going to be a significant tailwind to the global narrative and that's right. that's the that's that's the thing it's it's really how the globe looks at what the opportunity is in trade again
2: yeah narrative is the key operative it's yeah. not clear what yeah. that will do but the narrative matters cuz it yep. matters for business yeah. confidence
1: we saw it in the fourth quarter last year it really mattered, mattered yeah. on the flip side yeah yeah, yeah. yeah
2: well narrative yeah. terrible then narrative wonderful now we're narrative pretty good Peter Kenny <laughs> thank you so much for being with us Peter Kenny thanks, founder and strategic board solutions um, for, uh, founder of strategic board solutions joining us here in our interactive broker studios
1: Well, have you ever stepped back and thought, where does all the world's garbage go? A lot. A lot. I never did until I saw a recent Wall Street Journal article talking about it, and they said most of it has been going to China historically, but now China's saying, gee, maybe not anymore. Julia Atwood, head of advanced materials for Bloomberg NEF, joins us to chat about this. She's in our Paris office today, lucky for Julia. So Julia, this was an interesting story. Again, a lot of trash historically has gone to China for processing. Then, I guess, starting last year, they said, we're not really interested in your trash. What's the story here?
5: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, the story is really interesting, especially because China is kind of half of it, and then the circular economy is the other half of it. So what China said was, we don't want your trash anymore because it's too dirty, it's too poorly sorted, and we think of it as toxic waste. So they basically said, We are moving towards advanced manufacturing. We want to make the really difficult stuff. We don't need any more waste plastic to use to make uh, toys or simpler products. So they called it their national sword uh, policy, and it was really about how they're changing their manufacturing focus and the quality of what they were getting from other countries.
2: Julia, I think about this all the time, in part because I'm trying to understand. Let's say you get uh, takeout Chinese food and you're going to recycle the plastic containers. How much do you have to wash them uh, in order to have them properly recycled? I know this is crazy to, to be talking about this, but it's actually it goes to the fundamental heart of this, right?
5: Mm, it does. Absolutely because it's a totally different story if you've got something that's really clean and really well-sorted because then recyclers can get a high-value product out of it at the end. Um, so the recyclers would tell you, my God, put it in the dishwasher. Have it cleaned, sterilized, and Ooh. put it into a completely separate bin. So they want something perfect. Why,
2: so they want something perfect. Why can't we come up with technology that just does that? I mean, because that's, if that's the huge obstacle between reusing and not reusing... Uh, you know, it's going to take a whole lot of education, luck, and probably failure uh, to get this right. Why can't we just come up with better technology?
5: Well, we have, because I think a lot of people have realized that trying to convince a mass of consumers is difficult. And you want to be thinking about asking companies to do something because they're kind of a point source for all of these products. So there are better technologies on the sorting side, whether you're using robotics or uh, computer vision to pick out the right plastic. But what's also really interesting is that the packaging makers themselves are going back and looking at their design and saying, what can I do to be better? And then there are some companies who are just sidestepping the whole thing completely, looking into new processes like chemical recycling that can deal with a few more contaminants. There are a bunch of ways that we can sidestep these problems through better technology. Julia, can you give us
1: a sense of how, I don't know, if how the world has done in terms of recycling or maybe how the Western developed world has done? I mean, over the last 10 or 20 years, is the world recycling materially more than it used to?
5: Not really. It depends on which country you pick. The really standout example of the people who've done very well with their recycling is actually South Korea. And the reason why they did so well is because they introduced something called a pay-as-you-throw scheme. So they actually got charged by the amount of waste per household they were generating rather than just having a flat fee buried somewhere in your taxes that you can't see. Now, in Europe, in the U.S., we've actually seen some recycling rates starting to go down because it's just getting too expensive for municipalities to do.
2: So what's the U.S. going to do with
5: China now rejecting our recycling? Well, What I think is the most interesting part of this whole question is how other parts of the supply chain have started to get involved. So China saying we're not going to take plastic waste, made all the waste managers sit up and take notice. But what's happening at the other end of the supply chain is consumer companies are coming under pressure to be more sustainable and recycle more because of all the terrible images of plastic waste in the ocean. So what started to happen, especially in the U.S., is these brand owners have said, We can't be held responsible for this. We have to start making investments. So we recently saw Nespresso give over a million dollars to a recycling company to install a new line to recycle those little aluminum pods for your coffee. So the waste managers are kind of sitting around saying, okay, when do I get my million dollars? Like, when is the brand coming to the rescue to help us fix our recycling infrastructure? Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Keurig Dr. Pepper, together, they're putting $100 million into better curbside recycling. So really, it's the companies that are leaving, leading it, not the policymakers.
1: All right, Alright, so just a quick question. If the garbage isn't going to China, where is it going?
5: A lot of it is actually being stored. In Japan, they just have massive storage facilities that are holding on to the waste and hoping prices are going to increase because most scrap is actually traded. And there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel because we're starting to see prices for the kind of plastics that go into detergent bottles actually being higher than new material. So the markets are going to rebalance.
2: Julia Atwood, thank you so much. Really interesting. Uh, Julia Atwood, head of advanced materials for Bloomberg, uh, the BNEF, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. She is normally based in New York, but in Paris today. And I got to say, I think about it all the time. You started by asking, how yep. often do you think about it? And I think about it all the time because I think about how much to clean right. each item. And then if you end up washing it with a lot of water is that ineffective or effective I mean I know I sound really tortured when I when I go into this but I think about it every time there's some plastic container it's like well how much effort should you put into making it spotless it's
1: interesting you know here at bloomberg and all the bloomberg offices around the world really really focused on recycling and, and really take the time to, to have all the separate bins and, and separated and we have all the compostable uh things i just wonder what other companies and what are the households to what degree are they taking it I, I just don't know
2: well and at what point do you just bring your own dish i mean i'm serious yeah, yeah. like at what point do we just stop with the disposable stuff. I, I don't know. Interesting questions.
1: Holiday shopping starting to wrap up here. We have Christmas in a few days, Hanukkah starting on a Sunday. Let's get a sense of how Things are out there in retail land. We welcome our good friend, Jim Fallon, editorial director for Women's Wear Daily. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, braving the cold of New York City. So, Jim, give us a sense here. Where You know, we kind of came into the holiday shopping season cautiously optimistic. I heard numbers of, you know, kind of 4-ish percent growth in terms of retail sales around the holidays. What are you finding?
6: Basically, those those forecasts ended up being accurate. It looks like it's going to be about 4% growth, maybe even a little higher. We were cautiously optimistic. I think the jobs picture, the overall strength of the economy fed into a consumer optimism that really hasn't waned. But I think what's happened is that the shopping happened early, then there was a lull. And now you'll see this weekend, the store is busy on this super Saturday, last Saturday before Christmas.
1: When we came into this uh, holiday shopping season, one of the things I heard was, oh, it's gonna be a short compressed holiday shopping season. Thanksgiving came late and so on and so forth. Is that gonna be a big issue, do you think, when the total dollars are counted?
6: I think the dollars will be the amount that was gonna be spent. So I think it it is, I mean, for the retailers, it's an issue for the retailers less the consumer. The consumer is gonna shop how much, they have six days less, but they're not really conscious of it it's a tighter pipeline for the, for the retailers to get their markdowns in and so forth. But the overall dollar number won't be reduced because there's six shop, fewer shopping days.
1: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I've learned as I spent more and more time looking at retail. It's not just getting people in the door to buy stuff or getting them to click to buy stuff. It's what kind of promotions you had to offer to get that traffic, whether it's foot traffic or, or e-traffic. Any sense that promotions, which are negative for retailers' margins, are running any higher than lower than normal? Margin,
6: uh, promotions are a little higher this year. They were earlier. Again, retailers started promoting even before Thanksgiving and Black Friday. So what's happening is that the Christmas shopping period is getting extended into early November, even for some retailers. And mar- promotions are a little higher this year, so margins will probably be impacted. Plus, you have things like free shipping that have to go into the cost of it and so forth. So what worry. are people buying this year? Is
1: it, usually, is it just kind of the electronic gadgets or is it fashion? What are people buying?
6: Uh, it's the normal. It's electronic gadgets it's you know it's the AirPod, it's that kind of thing fashion is the normal sweaters cold weather gear etc there isn't there hasn't really been a breakout fashion item that drives consumers to the store in quite a few seasons and that again has been an issue for retailers
1: so it's interesting i'm not sure if this is quite your ballywick but toys um toys R us no longer in business where do moms and dads get their
6: toys walmart days? picked up a lot of that business okay target has has picked up some of it um Amazon, of course, so I think I think those people recognized even as Toys R Us was struggling that they they needed to rush to fill in the gap So they all they all expanded their toy offering
1: So we, we all know <clears throat> that retail sales really over the last 10 plus years Maybe even more shifting pretty dramatically from the bricks and mortar to e-commerce Amazon and so on and so forth how were the retailers doing trying to make that migration from you know, bricks and mortar solely to maybe what I've heard is a term omni channel. How's that going? Are there winners
6: and losers or is everybody kind of struggling? It's, there are definitely winners. What you're seeing is, you know, the Walmarts and the Targets of the world are winning in that with the buy online, pick up in store, so called. BOPUS or click and collect. Um, but if you look at Walmart, it's market capitalization has increased by a hundred billion dollars yep. this year. So they're beginning to figure that out and they're beginning to use their stores as, as many distribution centers target the same. So those very much are winners. Retailers such as Macy's are still sort of figuring it out um, to a certain extent. But again, they're getting there. Uh, but it's a challenge. And I think I think the omni-channel world where it almost has to disappear because it's just retail now. The consumer wants to buy it where they where they want to buy it and want to pick it up or get it however they want to.
1: There's always those in my town where I live in New Jersey. There's always those shop local days and uh, signs around yeah. shop local, which we, we certainly try to do. But the reality is they can't really make those investments to get us to where we think we ought to be, which is I want it now. Right. And no, I want it anywhere no. I want to get. So what is small, and that's kind of where the, you know, the real retail is at, down at the, you know, the local level. What are the local retailers trying to do here?
6: I think the local retailers play up the personalization attitude. We know our customer, we know what you want. Oh, come in and buy. I, I got this specifically for you. This is your size, et cetera. Product differentiation to a big extent, um, and service. I mean, I think that even if it's if it's a Walmart or it's a major retailer, you're not going to get that personal service. You're walking into the store, and they say, "How are you? How are your children? House, yep. whatever." That's the edge they can play.
1: I can tell you, Tom Keene is heartbroken that Barney's uh, is going bankrupt. What do you take away from that? I mean, that was a great brand, high end. What happened there?
6: It was high end. To a certain extent, online killed it. Okay. I mean, a lot of those products became available through the net-a-portes, the Matches Fashion, et cetera. You could you could literally sit. I mean, Barney's had its own website. The move uptown to Madison Avenue. Even in the 90s was probably a misjudgment of the business, uh, given the rents that they had to pay and so forth. The rent issue killed it. And it was just keeping up with your customer. I think that the product became widely available, and they also became so high-end that they didn't have a sort of lower tier that would drive a lot of foot traffic through the store.
1: What is your sense of just the department store concept? Is that completely dying or is there a place
6: for i'm looking across street bloomingdale's macy's
1: what's the future
6: i mean they've been predicting the death of the department store since the 70s so you know clearly (laughs) uh, it depends on the department store i think there's still a place for them American department stores are in the middle of reinventing themselves, but if you go to a lot of the European department stores or even Asian department stores, they're packed. If you go to a Selfridges in London, that store is packed. Yep. It's offering very exclusive product. It's offering you know everything from a bakery to a tea store to a flower shop, et cetera. The more those stores expand into those kinds of things, and again, horrible word, but the experiential type yep. retail. There is very much still a place for them. Still over, we still are overstored in this country, though, right? Oh, hundred percent. Okay. Yes, we are. Right. I mean, I've heard by as much as like fifty percent. Oh, yes. The- I mean, I mean, again, Crazy. back into the eighties, yep. we've been overstored compared to other places.
1: All right, Jim Fallon, thanks so much for joining us. Jim Fallon's editorial director for Women's Wear Daily, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio.